today's parable addresses a very important question, and it's this, is God fair? I'm sure we all hope that God is fair. And yet, sometimes evidence might cause us to question whether he is or not. Uh, This question, I think, was very much in the minds of the disciples when Jesus spoke this parable. As we've seen with other parables, often the context is very important. Uh, Often the parable is spoken to address something that is happening at the time. Uh, If you've got your Bible open there and you just sort of uh, scan back to the end of chapter 19, uh, you'll see there... Uh, the story, you may be familiar with this story, of the man, sometimes known as the rich young ruler, who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, through his interaction uh, with Jesus, uh, this young man, it turns out, uh, is not prepared to give up all that he has in order to follow Jesus. And so he goes away from Jesus, uh, sad, and uh, not receiving the answer to the question that he wanted. In fact, he goes away from Jesus, uh, perhaps understanding that he will not inherit eternal life because of his unwillingness uh, to give up his wealth in this life. The disciples are watching this going on, and they're thinking, what? That guy isn't in the kingdom of heaven? That guy's not going to make the grade. That guy's not going to make the cut. A guy who, from all accounts, seems to be a very good man and apparently a blessed man. If he isn't going to make it into the kingdom of heaven, then who will? And their concern, of course, as tends to be the case with us human beings, is for themselves. What about us? They ask. Uh, Are we going to make the grade? Is there any rhyme or reason to who enters the kingdom of heaven? And behind all this, I think, is this question of, is God fair? Are you going to treat us fairly, God? Can can we know what to expect if we really follow you, Jesus? And I think there's other reasons that we ask these questions as well. I mean, we were just praying for Afghanistan You know, the images that come to us in our screens, we wonder perhaps at times, why does evil prosper? Why do the good perish? Is God going to do anything about these situations and perhaps even closer to home in our own lives, in our personal circumstances? We think, what are you doing, God? Are you fair? Is there any rhyme or reason? Well, to address that question, I think... Jesus tells this parable, this parable of the workers, the workers in, in, uh, in the marketplace in the first instance and then in the vineyard. Let's have a look at this and see what we can learn. Uh, we read that familiar introduction, chapter 20, verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like. His parables paint a picture for us, describe uh, some aspect of what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like. And we read here that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning, probably at the break of dawn, early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So the landowner owns a vineyard, needs some work done, and he goes out to hire 
workers, day labourers. So not people who were employed regularly by the man. Perhaps it's harvest time. Perhaps these are seasonal workers uh, and he needs extra workers. And so he goes to the marketplace. He goes to the labour market. And there early every morning, workers would gather, or potential workers, hopeful workers, people hoping for employment. And they would come to that spot, a great crowd of them, and they would size each other up, I imagine. They would look at each other and think, who is most likely? Do I, do I, will I get at work today? Will I be able to go home today with a coin in my hand and able to uh, buy food for my family and provide for them or not? And that was the prospect uh, facing each of these workers at the start of every day. No guarantees, just at the mercy of the market and the seasons and whoever might come along and whether they would be noticed. It's a tenuous sort of existence, isn't it, that people like this would have lived, literally from day to day, hand to mouth. Well, that was their situation. And there they were in the morning, and here comes the landowner. And we read in verse 2 that uh, he met with some and he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. For those who met the landowner early in the morning, this was a good day. This is a day where they got picked up. This is a day where they could know that after a hard day's work, they were guaranteed a good day's pay. And they would be able uh, to live another day and provide for their families and all that kind of thing. And so, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work they go. With a pick uh, or, you know, a pair of scissors or whatever it is they need for their work uh, to get the job done in the vineyard. Secateurs, probably, not scissors. Yeah. So for these guys, this day was a good day. But uh, it turns out that that wasn't the landowner's only visit to the labour market. Went out early in the morning, first of all, but he returned. And as the landowner returned, uh, each time... The workers remaining, well, they would have been less and less likely kind of people. You know, it's a little bit like, I don't know if this happened in your day, the picking teams in the schoolyard. Yeah? What a terrible moment. You know, what a terrible experience. What what nerve-wracking kind of confidence-shaking moments those were, weren't they? When the, the lineup was there and the two best players were out the front picking their teams, the two captains. And I always hated it, you know, because I wasn't very talented uh, at the sorts of sports that were played in the schoolyard. I know there was no real reason that I would get picked first or second or even third, and I just, I don't know if I literally prayed, I may have, that I wouldn't be last one standing. I wonder if you had a similar experience. Well, I think that's probably what it was like in the, in the labour yard, uh, no doubt. Those who came looking for workers looked for those who would do the best job. They certainly weren't looking for people who were lame in any way or looked weak or perhaps old, who would fatigue early or anything like that. And so as the crowds thinned out across the day, those who were left would have been those who were always left, those who weren't thought of as worthy. But this landowner, he keeps coming back 
keeps coming back and grabbing a few more and grabbing a few more. And notice in verse 4 that these guys, and fair enough, they're not promised a full day's wage, which was the denarius, that was the day's wage. Uh, Rather, he tells them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. Now, they're not in a position to argue the toss, are they? Okay, fair enough. Uh, We'll accept whatever you choose to pay us. Beggars can't be choosers. And something is better than nothing, isn't it? At the end of the day, if you can scrape together some scraps, then that is better than returning home with nothing at all. So after his visit early in the morning, the landowner comes back at 9am and noon and 3pm in the afternoon. And then surprisingly, perplexingly, he turns up at 5pm. Now, anyone who's been paying attention might notice that I didn't do my research properly and I put four o'clock on the, uh, <laughs> on the poster over here. Uh, that was because I was thinking in modern terms of the, uh, you know, the modern working week, nine to five work and that sort of thing, an hour before knockoff time. Of course, uh, back in these times, it was more a case of while the sun is up, we're at work, and uh, the day was generally considered from six to six, the working day, from sun up to sundown. And so the landowner goes back to the marketplace at 5 p.m. No one would ever do that, but he does. He goes back at 5 p.m. and he looks for more workers. He goes back at 5 p.m. and he finds some more and he says, hey, you guys, what are you still doing here? (laughs) And they say, no one's given us any work. We were about to go home. And he says, no, no, you come and work in my vineyard as well. They must have thought this was very odd, barely time to pick up a tool or anything, barely time to get to the field, and yet off they go, and they do their hour's work at most, and it's knock-off time. I can't imagine they had great hopes for their pay (laughs) at the end of the day. Uh, they've, uh, they've hardly done anything, hardly lifted a finger. But then, plot twist. Then everything gets turned on its head. Because when evening came, we see there in verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And so he does. Foreman calls the workers over and he calls those who came at 5pm, those who've just turned up, really, those who haven't even got their hands dirty or any calluses or anything like that, those who haven't even broken a sweat. He calls them over and he pays them what is right or what he considers right, what the landowner considers right. And it turns out, bizarrely, that what the landowner considers is right is that they get a full day's wage. Only work an hour, but they get a full day's pay. And then those who come, who started at three come, and they also get a full day's pay. At midday and at 9am, and finally those who've been there since sunup. And everybody gets paid the same. Everybody gets paid a full day's wage. Now, you can imagine if you were one of those five o'clock workers 
that when you put your hand out and you received your full day's pay, you would have been ecstatic. You would have wondered if there was some sort of mistake, but I suppose as each of your comrades, five o'clock comrades came along and got their full day's pay, you thought, well, no, it's consistent, no mistake, it's bizarre, but I'll take it. You'd be ecstatic, wouldn't you? You'd be able to go home and you'd tell the story to your family. You wouldn't believe what happened today. I worked one hour and got a full day's pay. They would have loved what had happened. But those who were hired first, well, not so much. Not happy. That's right. Far less impressed with this landowner and his behaviour. You see in verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. And this is their complaint. These who were hired last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And you can kind of understand how they feel, can't you? In fact, I suspect that if I was in their shoes, I might feel just the same. Because it doesn't seem fair, does it? And it feels, if you're in their shoes, it feels like you're missing out. Somehow or other, even though you got what you were promised, it still feels like you're missing out. But the landowner speaks plainly to them, doesn't he? And here really, here as he replies to them is the punchline of the parable. And he answers these who grumble to him, I am not being unfair to you. On what grounds does he make this claim? Well, because... I notice how he says friend. (laughs) I'm not being unfair to you, friend. He's not harsh with these men. I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? I've been completely fair with you. We had an agreement, and I've met my part of the agreement. Take your pay and go. But I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, he says? Well, that's hard to argue with. Or, and this is really where he puts the finger on it, He says, or are you envious because I am generous? Is that really what's going on here? Envy at my generosity. For me, the landowner's actions, the way that he treats the workers, raises two questions. Firstly, why does he choose to be generous? Why does he choose to be generous? That's the first big question, I think, uh, that is raised. The second big question for me is, why does he pay the last first and the first last? That's an interesting little detail of the story, isn't it? Why does he do that? So firstly, why does he choose to be generous? Is he just flaunting his wealth? Or making a point about his freedom to do as he pleases because he's, you know, of that class. 
and rubbing their noses in it? Why does he pay them all the same regardless of how long or how hard they've worked or of what they deserved? Well, here's an idea. What if the landowner wasn't paying the workers according to what they'd earned but according to what they needed? What if his focus wasn't on the work that he needed done in his vineyard, but on the food that the workers needed and would be able to buy for their families once they were paid? Now, that's not normally how a boss thinks, is it? But what if it were the case here? What if every time that this landowner went back to the town square, he saw those waiting there with no prospect and his compassion was aroused? by the side of unwanted workers who would be going home with nothing. What if this is a very different sort of landowner? Because remember what these stories are about. Remember that this is what it's like in the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're learning, isn't it? This is what it's like in the kingdom of heaven. And it's fairly obvious, I think, that the landowner represents God. In fact, the landowner is a beautiful picture for us of what God is like and how he deals with people, how he treats people, how he looks at people. It's a beautiful picture of how in God's dealings with people, he's not looking to get something out of them. It's not that God needs work done and he needs us to do it. Rather, God knows what our needs are and he wants to meet them. He is eager to give us what we need. I think that's the first big lesson here, that this is how God works. This is how God treats us. This is his economy. This is his pay scale according to our need. He knows what we need and he's eager to meet our need. That's how he deals with us. But what about the other question? Why pay them backwards? Why have those who've worked all day stand there and watch while he pays all the others, raises their expectations perhaps that they will get more and then pays them the same? Why does he do that? I mean, that seems a little bit callous a little bit manipulative perhaps? Is he being mean? Is he, is he just toying with them? Is he getting their hopes up? It seems like it in a way. But maybe there's something even simpler going on here. What if it's just that he wants his generosity to be on display? Now that in itself might sound a little bit odd, might sound a little bit off, It might sound a little bit, you know, um, like he's exalting himself. And we don't really like that, do we, when someone does that? When somebody kind of big notes themselves and draws attention to their wonderful characteristics. But remember that this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven In fact, it's a parable about the king of heaven. 
It's a parable about the generous king of heaven. And for reasons that we'll see in a minute, it's entirely appropriate that his generosity should be on display. We'll come back to that in a minute. But before we get there, I just want to point out that this is a story that has an invitation embedded within it, doesn't it? It has an invitation to accept the offer of the king, the generous offer of the king, to know this king and to come under his rule and to live for him and entrust your need to him. To accept that this king knows your need and not just your daily need, not just your need for food on the table, but your need for restoration with him, your need to have sins forgiven, your need to have him treat you more than fairly. Because really, you, you don't want a God who is just fair. Yeah, you want a God who is just and fair, but you don't want a God who is just fair. Because where would that leave you? That would leave you unemployed. It would leave you on the outer. It would leave you waiting in the marketplace. It would leave you with all your needs unmet. You want a God who will be more than that. You do want a generous God. And that's who we have in the God of the Bible. The generous landowner who keeps coming back and keeps putting out the invitation and keeps saying, come on, come and work with me. Come and live in my kingdom and I'll be generous to you. You can trust me. But there's also a warning here, isn't there? that we not take on the attitudes of those who were employed first. That we don't let God's generosity make us envious and grumble and actually turn against God. Because which is better? Which is better, fairness or generosity? Well, objectively, right, when we're just kind of standing on the sidelines, that's easy to answer, isn't it? Generosity is better. But when we're in the middle of things, we find it hard to be objective. It really depends, doesn't it, on whether we're the ones on the receiving end of the generosity. (laughs) When we're the ones on the receiving end of the generosity, we think that's awesome. But when somebody else is, maybe we'd just rather some fairness here. We have this terrible habit, you see, of being self-interested. And it's not good. It can rob us of the opportunity to rejoice when others benefit. Even worse, it can mean that we don't celebrate the kindness and the generosity and the grace of God wherever we see it, as we should. And I think we're all prone to that, that self-centred attitude that can distort our view of who God is and what he's like. But I reckon there are two things that can change our perspective here today. Uh, One of them is inside the parable and one of them is just outside the parable. 
The first thing I think that will help us to have a proper perspective of God and his generosity is, is to see that at the start of the day, everyone was in the same boat. Right? At the start of the day, all those workers were in the same boat, unemployed, with no right to a job, no promise of a job, no guarantee of work, no clear prospects. They were all in need and they all had the same need. And that's true of salvation too, isn't it? That every single one of us is in need. Every single one of us starts life in the same situation, in the same position, with the same great need for God to deal with our sin problem. We're all, no matter how long we've known the Lord, we're all recipients of his generosity. We're all on the receiving end of his generosity. He owed nothing to us. And yet in love, he reaches out and he chooses. We need to make sure that we don't slip into thinking that we've somehow earned it. It's easy to slip into that way of thinking. But it's not true, and it distorts our opinion of God. Salvation for everyone, relationship with God for everyone is a gift that he freely gives. So that's the first thing that I I think helps us to value God's generosity. But to see the second, we have to go just outside the parable. We have to see what happens just next. See... No parable tells the whole story. Every parable sort of hones in on an aspect of what God is like, what the nature of his kingdom, the truth of the gospel. And Jesus does tend to leave something out of his parables, something that when we look back from our vantage point, it adds a really amazing dimension to what he teaches in those parables. And often what he leaves out is actually the cost of the kingdom. See, there's no real mention in the parable of what it costs the landowner, is it? I mean, apart from the denarius that he pays each person. But he says himself, it's my money, I can do with it what I want. He seems to be a wealthy man. But just after this parable, this parable that is bracketed by the same phrase, Uh, The first will be last, and the last will be first. Just after that, we read that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Do you know why he was going up to Jerusalem? He's going to pay the price. On the way, he took the twelve aside and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. See, when Jesus says to the disciples that the first will be last and the last will be first, it's true in two ways. Firstly, As we've already seen, he's obviously making a statement about the unexpected nature of God's kingdom. It can't be earned or merited, and those who seem to be the first will end up being the last. Those who seem to have nothing will be seen to receive everything. 
In fact, success in this life may even rule you out of a place in God's kingdom, as it had been with that rich man in chapter 19. But there's another way in which the kingdom comes through the first being last. There's a deeper layer of grace, you see, that's also reflected in Jesus' topsy-turvy revolutionary statement. And it's this. The one who is the first, the one who is preeminent, the one who is Lord of all, the one who is the Son of God or the Son of Man in this language, the great King of heaven, recognized by heaven, he makes himself last. See, this is how God makes it possible for you and I to receive more than we deserve. The one who is first makes himself last so that those who should be last can receive the honour and the privilege of being first. Those who are the dregs, leftovers in the marketplace still get picked up and still get the full reward. It comes at a cost to the landowner. It comes at a cost to God to be generous As Paul, the Apostle, later reflected in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin, the first, God made him who had no sin to be sin, to be last for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made the one who was first last so that those who were last could be first. And folks, that is why, let's go back to the parable and that question about the landowner putting his generosity on display. This is why it is entirely appropriate for God to want his generosity to be on display. Because what he's putting on display is actually the gospel. It's his son. It's his glorious son who gave up his life. It's his grace that is on display for everybody to see. And that is entirely appropriate, don't you think? To glorify Jesus? Entirely appropriate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your grace is hard to fathom. Probably not too much to say it's impossible to fathom. But we thank you for stories like this one that mess with our minds a little bit and mess with our hearts and get us to think more deeply about what you've done for us in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. About your nature, your generous nature, which really cannot be questioned. It's not that you are unfair, it's that you are more than fair. You are better than fair. Yes, you are fair, but you exceed that. You are gracious, you are kind, you are compassionate. You return again and again, you invite, and you give far more than is deserved. 
And if that wasn't enough, Father, then we come to understand what it costs you to be the generous God that you are, the true nature of your generosity to us. That in order to be generous, it wasn't just a case of putting your hand in your pocket and pulling out coins, but it required the gift, the life, the brutal death of your son so that our sin could be wiped away, so that our forgiveness could be granted, so that our relationship with you could be restored. Father, help us to never accuse you of being unfair. Far from it, Father, help us to glorify you for your generosity and to gratefully accept your grace to us in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.